From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the program, and thank you very much for tuning in. My name is Patrick White, and I'm your guest host tonight, as Richard Serrett is away on a top-secret mission. I can't tell you what it is, because I'm afraid the men in black would show up. Just a quick programming note. Next week, Richard Serrett will also be away. So Victor Vigiani, the executive director of Zeland News Network, will be here in the captain's chair, along with Rosemary Ellen Guiley and some other great guests. Victor is no stranger to the program, so be sure to tune in and check it out. Now, some of you may know who I am, but for those of you who don't, a little bit about myself. My beautiful wife, Kadena, and I opened Conspiracy Culture Bookstore back in August 26, 2006, after years of realizing just how difficult it was to acquire books that dealt with the subject matters uh, that you hear so often on this program. So we sell rare and hard-to-find books, some really cool DVDs, magazines. Uh, we've even had Victor Vigiani and Richard Serrett stop by and spend some time in the shop. If you're still hungry for more, you can always check out Richard's website at richardserrett.com. I was clicking around on Richard's website earlier, reading an article about machines potentially fighting humans in the not-too-distant future for our resources. And there was a quote by a gentleman, Gary Marcus, that went, It's likely that machines will be smarter than us before the end of the century, not just at chess or trivia questions, but at just about everything, from mathematics and engineering to science and medicine. It made me think of that scene from 2001, A Space Odyssey, when the computer Hal warned his human operators, I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me, and I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. <laughs> it's a scary thought for some, the merging of man and machine. Uh, some say it's the answer to death and disease, a way to eliminate aging, enhance human intellect, and some foresee the merger ultimately bringing about immortality. And that's the musical question this week, as we ask, would you want to live forever? And to help answer the question, our guest is a recognized scholar whose credentials include a PhD in philosophy from the University of Oxford. His literary contribution is a veritable resume unto itself, covering such fields as Nazi Germany, sacred literature, physics, finances, the Giza pyramids, and music theory. A renowned researcher with an eye to assimilate a tremendous amount of background material, he is able to condense the best scholastic research and publication and draw insightful new conclusions on complex and controversial subjects. Dr. Joseph P. Farrell is the co-author of Transhumanism, a grimoire of alchemical agendas, which reveals what may become of human civilization, who is setting the agenda, and why. 
published by Farrell House. Joseph Farrell, thank you so very much for joining us this evening. How are you, sir? I'm fine. Thanks for having me back on. It's, it's a pleasure to be back here. Great. And first, I'd like to say what a pleasure it is for me to get my first on-air interview with a gentleman such <laughs> as yourself. Uh, your books have been extremely popular at my bookstore over the years, and I'm absolutely certain that some of my customers are tuning in, and some of them are actually members of your website. Well, cool. <laughs> yeah, and one of your most recent works, uh, Transhumanism, uh-huh. a grimoire of alchemical agendas, uh, deals with a very interesting and timely topic. But before we move forward, could you please explain what transhumanism is? Well, that's a good question. Um, in fact, my, my co-author, Dr. Scott DeHart, and I, when we were researching and writing this book, we were at a bit of a loss to figure out if we were dealing with a movement or if we were dealing with a philosophy. And we finally decided that what we were dealing with was neither. We were dealing with kind of a modern, updated version of of alchemy. Because alchemy, if you look at it very closely, if you're familiar with the literature, it's really all about transmutation and transformation, and that includes not just the old idea that everyone's familiar with of, of turning you know base metals into gold, but it's also about more importantly transforming mankind himself. And we once we made that that conclusion, the book kind of fell into place because alchemy, if you look at it very carefully, if you look at esoteric doctrine, hermetic doctrine, whatever you wish to call it, it basically describes the descent or creation of the world in, in four basic stages. And and these are very important for people to understand the way we lay out the book. At the top of this chain, there's what we are calling the androgyny. And androgyny oftentimes functions in esoteric and alchemical literature as the the fusion of things that we would normally consider to be opposites. And then a step below that, you have mineral man. In esoteric doctrine, there's actually four stages of the creation of man. So there's actually a mineral man, then below that, vegetable man, and then finally us, animal man. And what alchemy seeks to do is to get back to that primordial unity by climbing the ladder backwards. And if you look at transhumanism, we were we were sort of stunned when we found this, because if you look at what the transhumanists are talking about, they're talking about the creative use of what they call the GRIN technologies, standing for genetics, robotics, information technology, and nanotechnology. And as you get into all of the things happening, what the geneticists are talking about with making hybrids of of humans and and other species, and and even now, of course, with GMOs being such such an issue, and when you turn to some other transhumanists like, like Ray Kurzweil and so on, they're talking about the fusion of man and machine through robotics and, and computer interfaces and nanotechnology. They're really talking about each of these four stages. So the book, um, the book lays out transhumanism 
as an alchemical enterprise, and therefore it's both a philosophy and a movement. <laughs> so that's a long way around uh, around the bush to, to try and describe it, but that's essentially the approach that we take in the book. And would you care to speculate as to how, how far back in history uh, this particular agenda or philosophy may have existed? Oh boy, that's another, that's a great question. We, in the book, we decided to include a few chapters on certain authors like Oscar Wilde, Percy Shelley, um, even, even Aquinas, believe it or not. And the reason we did so, and it's particularly clear in, in Percy Shelley, uh, we tend to the view that he is the actual author of, of the 1818 version of Frankenstein, not Mary Shelley. And the reason we think that is, is laid out uh, fairly clearly in the book, and then Dr. DeHart has his own book out on that topic called Shelley Unbound. But when you look at Frankenstein, it's really a novel about transhumanism. It's It's a novel about the changes that are going to be brought about in mankind and in his culture and and relationships by science and and technology and with that in mind when you when you turn back the pages of history and and really look at alchemy itself we could honestly say that alchemy and, and transhumanism as a as a movement are are at least a millennium old if not older uh, transhumanism itself, as we as we say, it's it's kind of a modern update of alchemy. Now, in your book, you and your co-author Scott DeHart allude to the notion that Mary Shelley's Frankenstein uh, is, in some ways, an allegorical piece of predictive programming in popular culture uh, for the future transformation of human biology through technology. Now. Do you think that Shelley was somehow privy to the transhumanist agenda in the early 19th century? And if so, where would Shelley have acquired these ideas? And and maybe even expanding on that, what would have been some of Shelley's influences prior to even writing Frankenstein? Oh, that's that's a really great question, and I wish my co-author were here to ask, answer it because he's really the expert on it. But one of the things that that people don't know about Percy Shelley that we presented in the book is that we we definitely think he was uh, kind of prophetic about transhumanism because he was tremendously influenced by the writings of of a little known French uh, Catholic priest by the name of Abbe Barrel. All right. And Barrel wrote a history of the Bavarian Illuminati, and Shelley kept this, this vol- these volumes of history that, that Barrel wrote about the Bavarian Illuminati with him at all times. He was fascinated by the agenda of the Illuminati. And that's that's to- really interesting, Joseph. Uh, I hear the bumper music percolating, so we're okay. just going to have to take a quick break. Uh, this is Patrick White filling in for Richard Serrett who's figured out a way to the fifth dimension. And we're talking with Joseph Farrell, author of Transhumanism, A Grimoire of Alchemical Agendas. Stay right there. We'll be right back. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. 
Welcome back, friends. We're talking with Joseph P. Farrell about the transhumanist movement and the quest for immortality. I am Patrick White filling in for Richard Serrett. Uh, Joseph, um, you were just mentioning something about Shelley uh, carrying around, uh, I believe you said, the dictates of the Bavarian Illuminati on their person at all times. Um, why would they do that? Well, Shelley was fascinated. He was, he was again, kind of a prophet of the whole transhumanist movement, and he was fascinated particularly by the Bavarian Illuminati and their agenda, which was to be kind of a social revolution against all sorts of um, priesthoods and religion and uh, divine right of kings and so on and so forth. And Shelley was fascinated by this and saw the cultural implications. And he kind of codes this into Frankenstein by setting the whole novel in a little kind of suburb of modern-day Munich called Ingolstadt. And if you look at the history of the Bavarian Illuminati, the founder of, of that particular organization back in the 18th century, was a professor of canon law by the name of Adam Weishaupt, who was located at the University of Ingolstadt. And, of course, you know, by setting the whole tale of Frankenstein there, he's kind of giving you a clue as as to the wider cultural agendas. So, yeah, he was... He was really steeped in in all of this, and and the second influence really that we should mention perhaps in this in this respect on Percy Shelley was Erasmus Darwin, who was of course the grandfather of of Charles Darwin. And Erasmus, if you look at his body of writing, he was like Shelley; he was a poet, and he more or less foresaw the way that biology would eventually go under his under his grandson and wrote a whole uh, series of poems about how science itself how the universe is constantly transforming that it's really not a a um, theistic universe at least in the sense that that Christianity and organized religion were were talking about so Shelley embodied all of that really in in Frankenstein and in regards to some of the other more popular literary works uh-huh. in, in the 19th and 20th century, um, I, I believe you also mentioned that Dante and Oscar Wilde uh, both presented some of the transhumanist ideologies in their works. Um, yeah. Do you think that these individuals were unwitting participants pushing the agenda, or were they doing so intentionally upon the behalf of their occultic orders to which they belong? Well, I, I definitely think that you can make the case that Oscar Wilde was certainly influenced and, and dedicated to a certain extent to that ideal. Um, we examined the, the picture of Dorian Gray, which of course is, is by far his, his most famous work. And it really is again about the transformation of a human being in a bad sense, and, and Wilde makes that very clear by decadence and, and forswearing of, of traditional morality and so on and so forth. In Dante's case, it's a bit more difficult to say, but if you look at the Divine Comedy closely and consider what he's really saying, it again strikes us as far more having far more in common with, with esotericism than it does with Christianity for a very important reason. When you look at the Inferno, Dante is led through the entire 
circles of hell and on into purgatory, first of all, by a pagan guide, of course, by Virgil. And then he gets out of hell in a, in a very unique way, and that is by climbing up the back of, of Satan himself. So in other words, Dante is, is really telling you that, that you've got to plumb the depths of, of hell and all of that in order to emerge on the other side and into the divine light. And that's a very esoteric sort of, of, of theme. Uh, we do think that there's something to be said that he probably was coding a lot more esotericism in his work than, than meets the eye. In fact, there's been a, an e-book recently that was published by Mark Booth, another Oxford graduate, who wrote a wonderful book called The Hi Secret History of the World According to the Secret Societies. And he followed that up with this ebook all about the secret history of Dante, examining his um, esoteric influences. So, yeah, we think that even in Dante's case, you're dealing with someone that's, if not if not wholly sold on the agenda, he's at least familiar with it. And usually, these types of esoteric ideologies, you know, for the most part, can't be garnered unless an individual is somewhat submerged in these uh, secret organizations right and you know isn't there some sort of connection between oscar wilde and, and the golden dawn well there certainly is a connection between oscar wilde and freemasonry uh, wilde was at one point during his stay at oxford he was indebted um, for all of the money that he spent on acquiring Masonic garb and, and Masonic jewels and so on and so forth. He was, he was definitely an initiate into the Lodge. There's another kind of um, esoteric influence on Wilde at Oxford, and that was through his, his uh, mentor in his studies, a, a literary critic by the name of Walter Pater. And when you start digging around with Walter Pater, again, you're dealing with someone that's very, very familiar with the world of the esoteric and the occult. He writes about this in some of his literary criticism. So Wilde is definitely familiar with it. But Dorian Gray is, is interesting because, again, Wilde is seeing both the good side and the bad side of, of what he sees coming down the pike with this move towards a scientific culture that is free from the constraint of traditional morality because the book, of course, is, is about the decay of, of someone that trades, trades his mortality for knowledge and for experience and, and decadence. And, of course, Dorian Gray finally ends up dead when he finally kills the picture, so to speak. But um, that's, that's another whole transhumanist theme, this, this whole idea of achieving immortality via the means of science. Yeah, and, and now I'd sort of like to move just a little bit more uh, towards current time. And, uh, you know, if, if anyone has ever seen the $6 million man's opening sequence, not only do we see Steve Austin's ill-fated aircraft tumbling down to the <laughs> earth and right. bursting into flames... But you also hear uh, a rather unforgettable line uh, that goes as follows. Uh, Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. We have the capability to make the world's first bionic man. Steve Austin will be that man better than he was before, better, stronger, faster. 
Now, over the years, we've been subjected to some incredible predictive programming and Mm -hmm. some ridiculously slick social engineering at the hands of Hollywood, television, uh, and so forth. Popular films like Universal Soldier, uh, uh, RoboCop, which is being done for a second generation, uh, Terminator 2, even going back as far as Fritz Lang's 1927 film Metropolis, Oh yes, yes. They've they've been conditioning us for years, romanticizing the merger of man and machine. Um, what what could you describe as some of the more subversive means that they've been using to condition the populace uh, in regards to accepting the transhumanist agenda? Well, the, the most subversive mean, Patrick, I think, ultimately comes down to that that all of this is being portrayed as something good, that there's no moral consequence to all of this. Uh, they're portraying it as an inevitability, and in a certain sense it is. I mean, these, these things are now coming down the pike at us so fast and so hard that it's going to be very, very hard to, to resist or escape it. The real, the real problem I put in my very first book um, when I started writing in this field is there is an old, old statement by a church father by the name of, of John Chrysostom. And he points out whether one agrees with, with the doctrine or not, I think the moral sentiment is, is very captivating. He points out that the reason that mankind was punished by death at the fall was in order to cut off further progress in evil so if we can imagine for a moment the the ability to achieve some sort of immortality or at least extreme longevity by way of science and technology then we have to imagine two potentialities we have to imagine either an Albert Schweitzer or a Mother Teresa living hundreds or thousands of years and being able to do what they do. And we also have to imagine someone like an Adolf Hitler or a Mao Zedong or Joseph Stalin living that amount of time and doing what they do. So in other words, the longer you live, the the moral tendency or habit of people is going to be exacerbated by the technology itself to an extreme degree. And, and that's rather frightening, but it is something that people need to bear in mind. Absolutely. And in regards to bringing about this um, transhumanist agenda, um, how would you generalize the approach that certain private interests or individuals will, will need to take in order to achieve this goal? Well, we're already seeing it. Uh, in fact, you know, I was thinking about this interview tonight before before your phone call. And two years ago, when we were in the process of writing the book, we felt overwhelmed by the amount of, of knowledge coming down the pike. But the book, in a certain sense, is already obsolete con- considering what they're talking about. Um, we're already seeing private groups that are creating chimeras of, of human beings and other animals, manimals they call them in, in transhumanism. We're already seeing now a push to surround ourselves with digital technology of, of almost an inconceivable variety, smart homes and so on and so forth. And you already have certain people in the transhumanist movement that have that have been implanted quite literally with computer chips and so on and so forth to enhance their abilities. So 
the 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 whole thing is being pushed and it's being pushed as you say precisely by private corporations this is not happening in the realm of government or research it's people like Ray Kurzweil working now for Google uh you know all of this is 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 pretty wild but but it's it's going to happen um and and who's going to be able to resist in a certain sense to have better health live longer be smarter you know select the kind of children that they want to have and so on and so forth yeah and it's it's interesting that you mentioned the relationship between Kurzweil and Google uh just a, sh- a short time ago a, a blog post on your website linked to an article detailing the recent acquisition of Boston Dynamics, uh, which is a robotics company by Google. And your remark at that particular time was that it was so provocative that I don't even want to begin to comment. Now, if it's not too soon, could you speculate as to the implications of this merger and, and give us your take on what um, what types of technologies uh, we'll likely see in the near future as a result of this uh, marriage. Well, you, you you alluded to it already by by citing the old television series Six Million Dollar Man. The idea that we're going to enhance the capabilities both physically and mentally by the application of technology, including robotic technology. In fact, one of the things we we pointed out in in the transhumanism book is that the American Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, I, I like to call it the diabolically apocalyptic research projects agency, but, <laughs> but in but in any case, they are they are researching the whole idea of fusing mankind and and robots by exoskeletons and increasing their their ability to perform on the battlefield by that means. They're talking about fusions of man and and dolphins because dolphins are able to sleep with one half of their brain and stay operative with the other half. So in other words, imagine a battlefield transformed to the extent by this type of technology where human beings no longer have to sleep. So you're kind of doubling, if not tripling, the efficiency of, of the individual soldier. They've talked about other things, uh, implants, night vision retinas, you know, implanted in the eye, and on and on this goes. So in other words, we also have to ask the question, um, and, and we leave the question open, I should say, in the book, but we also have to ask the question, at what point does all of this tinkering with humanity really begin to fulfill that desire to make a better human, the superhuman, the ubermensch, and are they going to be recognizably human in terms of their their emotional life, their ability to empathize with other humans, particularly those that don't have access or choose not to deploy any of these technologies? These are all questions coming down the pike extremely fast. All right. Um, my name is Patrick White, and I'm filling in for Richard Serrett, who is currently transcending space and time. And I am talking with Dr. Joseph Farrell about transhumanism. Do not go anywhere. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. 
Welcome back, fellow mutants. We are talking with Joseph Farrell about the transhumanist movement and the quest for immortality. Now, Joseph, we were just talking before the break about a really crazy organization known as DARPA. And (laughs) these guys are just absolutely pushing the limits of science. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen the TV show Fringe, but I've always... (laughs) <laughs> I've always perceived DARPA to be just like a giant room filled with Walters. <laughs> yes, you know, I would agree with you there, and I'm a fan of the show. Oh, it's great. Super soldiers, universal antidotes and vaccines. Right. I, I, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, a few years ago when you guys were penning the book, that at, at this time, um, you know, the information is pretty much considered like outdated. And, and isn't that sort of like what some of the organizations within DARPA are doing? I mean, if, if we see it within the public realm, has it not already been deemed obsolete by DARPA? Well, yeah, this is, this is the other disturbing thing. And, and you mentioned a lot of things that they're up to, universal vaccines and, and so on and so forth. And DARPA really is kind of the, if you want to think of one particular government agency in the world that is more or less part of this transhumanist agenda, this movement, whatever you wish to call it, it would be DARPA, because they do have, as one of their explicitly stated goals, the creation of, of a super soldier. And when you when you strip away the military language, Patrick, what they're really talking about is the creation of a superhuman. And one of the things that is a constant in the whole transhumanist movement is this idea of the merger of man and machine, which which Dr. DeHart and I place at the second highest level in that alchemical reascent back up the ladder, because that's really the merger of man and mineral. They're talking about, about mineral man. And the disturbing thing here, and it's something that I think people particularly those who would be tempted by this whole idea that, that Kurzweil and others are talking about of of implanting yourself with computer chips, downloading all of your memories and, and uploading them into a new body and so on and so forth, is, first of all, does the sum total of our memory and emotional life, does that constitute our person or is there something intangible and always inescapable about our, our our individuality that cannot be reduced to mere uh, material sorts of memory. That's the first thing I think that transhumanism poses. But in the wake recently that we've seen these mergers of Google and the robotics company that you referred to, the fact that Google brings on board Ray Kurzweil to, to be kind of a consultant in in the company of, of where it should move in this transhumanist direction. The other thing we need to remember is if we're going to start talking about computer implants and, and so on and so forth, do we really want that in an era where we've seen the rampant NSA spying that, that has been revealed in the Snowden affair and and all of all of that and, and its implications? Do we really want to have someone with the ability to sit at a remote computer monitoring station and manipulate our memory, our mind, our emotions. 
uh, to intrude on our privacy in such a way? I, you know, for me, the answer is no. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like a scene out of the television show Dollhouse. Yes. Yeah, yes. where everybody's just working sort of in a hive collective. Yes, yeah. And I think ultimately this is the other danger to it. Um, we are dealing now with computer algorithms and so on, particularly if, you, if you've been following their use in, in the financial markets with, with high-frequency trading and, and algorithmic trading. We're dealing now with computer models that can really model aggregate human behavior with a great deal of accuracy. So imagine then plugging in directly to it, not just watching it on your computer screen, but actually, so to speak, having your mind be the computer monitor. Do we really want that kind of hive mentality? And again, it goes back to, to this idea, are, are we as individuals reducible to neurons and, and the information contained in, in our synapses and so on and so forth, or is there something more? And I'm certainly in the tradition that says there's something more. I think the big danger, the untested danger with the transhumanist movement is precisely, as you say, the reduction of, of our humanity to, to a hive mind, to a machine. For sure, we would lose our individuality right. uh, in, in order to fortify the, you know, the, the consensus trance, if you will. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, I just want to take a sort of like a step forward to, I mean, er earlier you had mentioned uh, GMOs as part of the transhumanist agenda. Now, in terms of the development and the proliferation of genetically modified organisms by conglomerates like Monsanto, who I like to refer to as Monsatan, uh, <laughs> My nickname is Monster Santo. So <laughs> go, go right ahead. So Monsanto, Dupont, you know, is right. there is there purpose to somehow uh, modify the genes of human beings through the consumption of these genetically modified organisms? And and if so, uh, would you mind speculating on on how we're being modified? And is there any scientific data to support this speculation? Well, that's a difficult one because, of course, in a certain sense, it's, it's impossible to modify genetic code through the mere consumption of, of food because, you know, if that were the case, then those of us that like to eat meat, we'd be, you know, we'd be part cow or pig or something like this. It would start showing up in our, in our DNA. We'll get back. I'm hearing the sultry sounds of uh, okay. the bumper music. Hold tight, everybody. We'll be back shortly after the break. Don't go anywhere. This is The Conspiracy Show. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back, friends. We are talking with Joseph Farrell about the transhumanist movement and the quest for immortality. Joseph, uh, just before the break, we were about to embark on a discussion about GMOs potentially being a plot to bring about the change of human beings through genetics. Um, right. Would you care to speculate on that being a possibility? And if it is, is there any scientific data to support that speculation? Well, yeah, I was I was mentioning, you know, in a certain sense, we we can't say that 
in all fairness because we we ingest foods all the time that have no modification of our of our genome of our genetic structure but that said we have to look at some other things that have been that have been happening that have been reported now in some recent papers about uh, GMOs they do appear to increase certain types of cancers and so on and so forth within people that regularly ingest them or within uh, animals test animals that regularly ingest them and we don't yet know is this is this some sort of genetic response is it a complex response involving genetics and toxins and herbicides we we don't really know but this is the problem that that my co-author and I had with GMOs is the inadequacy of the testing that was done prior to bringing these things to market and during the break I was thinking of something else that we need to mention with this GMO issue with respect to this genetic modification possibility. We need to test it for a long period, I think, before we release such things to market. And the reason why is the bit of alchemical legal sleight of hand that was used by some of these companies to Push the GMO agenda back during the first Bush administration in the 19, late 1980s, early 1990s. They used a principle that they came up with called substantial equivalence. And what that was essentially was they said that, okay, our GMO corn or our GMO lima beans or what have you are substantially equivalent in terms of their nutritional properties to regular non-GMO corn or lima beans or green beans or what have you. Therefore, we don't need to subject them to the same sort of rigorous testing that we would with other things. But then they turned right around and said that because these things are modified, they're patentable. And because they're patentable, you cannot be found having a field containing our product unless we've sold it to you. So in other words, they've they've had their cake and eat it too. And I think we need to go back and examine this whole issue of substantial equivalence to begin with because the papers are coming out now that are clearly indicating that they're not substantially equivalent. So, you know, we need to revisit the whole legal issue upon which they, they founded this GMO empire of theirs. And there's also the issue once you get into patents of, you know, what happens once these certain patented genetics or, or struct DNA structures start showing up within the human body. Right. You know, if, you know, if they should, if they, if they should show up in the human body, you know, and we pose this simply as a hypothetical because again, we realize that mere ingestion of food doesn't, um, doesn't, normally modify the genome but suppose over time it does then does that mean that this genetic modification should it show up in a human population exposed over time to GMO foods does this mean that they then become property so you know all of this goes in <laughs> in all sorts of directions that when you get right down to it, you know, uh, we need we need to look at the whole um, the whole foundation on which all of that might be argued, which goes back again to this idea of, of substantial equivalence. 
Sure, and I don't think at any time the courts would rule in favor of the average you know, Joe Blow citizen. I mean, think back to well, they the... they haven't thus far. <laughs> no, I mean, there's the example of the farmer in Saskatchewan who even in the yeah. court, Monsanto had admitted criminal negligence and, and the court still had ruled in favor of the corporation. So, right. you know, I don't think that if, you know, hypothetically down the road, a, a human were to exhibit patented, care, like, uh, you know, property owned by a corporation, you know, it, it's going to become a real slippery slope, I think. Oh, yes, it already is. Um, there were other corporations in, in this country that had grown embryos, human embryos, from, from stem cells and by certain techniques, and they were ruled property of, of the company. So, you know, we're already on the slippery slope. In fact, we're, we're I th- in my opinion, Patrick, I think we're about halfway down the slide. Um, if we don't get a grip on it soon... Uh, it's, it's going to be a very bad thing. Fortunately, there's been a lot of pushback against GMOs in, in countries like India. Um, there's been there's been pushback in France and, and Hungary and Germany and Poland and more recently Russia. So I think it's going to come about, and, and I've been kind of predicting this, Patrick, that you're going to see the, the so-called BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, you're going to see them start competing directly with with American agribusiness giants by selling heirloom seeds. It's it's going to quickly become a geopolitical issue. In other words, yeah, I mean, even here in Canada, there's there's the controversy over uh, the Canadian government allowing the genetically modified salmon eggs uh, right. to, to be released into the public, and and what happens when these eggs become fish, and then what happens when these fish reproduce with your regular fish in the ecosystem right. i mean exactly. now you're you're getting like these frankenfish all of a sudden yeah and are those are those frankenfish if they continue some of the genetically engineered genes are those frankenfish are they going to be property or are you going to have to pay license fees to a gmo company to to uh, consume them and so on and so forth and when you get right down to it, I think that ultimately was their agenda. They they wanted deliberately, uh, in my opinion, although, again, I have no direct evidence for this, but they wanted deliberately to alter the entire food supply so that they could claim ownership over it. So, in other words, we're back to issues of, of power and control. So does it really boil down to helping and facilitating life, or does it boil down to controlling and owning life? Well, I think it's the latter. Um, I, to be quite honest, Patrick, I'm not personally persuaded that the propaganda that these companies have used, uh, which has been to tend to say that that they're doing this to, to help combat human hunger and starvation and so on and so forth. Um, in fact, there have been, I've heard, I have not been able to verify, but there have been apparently studies recently that have shown that even the productivity of certain fields over time with GMOs drops dramatically as as compared to to normal un, unengineered uh, foods and crops. So I think it it boils down really to an issue of control and power. I think that's that's the name of the game. And the reason I say that, Patrick, is in the book we talk about how the whole idea to a certain extent of of genetically modified foods was cooked up by the Rockefeller Foundation way, way back in in the 1950s. 
And more recently, I, I just uh, had a book come out called Covert Wars and, and the Clash of Civilizations. And you can even find a reference in the famous Brookings report about you know what would happen if we were to discover evidence of extraterrestrial intelligent life or or their artifacts. Even in that report, there is a reference to alternative crops way back in 1960. Wow, and it, and you know saying that it, it it makes me question how vaccinations or even possibly eugenics could possibly tie in. I mean, you mentioned the Rockefeller yeah. Foundation, so. So what about vaccinations and eugenics then? How would that tie into the transhumanist movement, if at all? Well, we don't talk about vaccinations or eugenics in the book, but it's a, it's a legitimate question. And, and to speculate a bit, I think that there is the danger inherent in the transhumanist movement, and I kind of alluded to it earlier in a comment. There is the danger. Let's say, let's say we have a transhumanist culture begin to emerge in our lifetimes. Let's say that the rich have access to nanotechnologies that can do cellular repair of the body and so on and so forth, and that thereby they begin to extend their life. Uh, let's say they have computer implants and are able to download knowledge you know, in five minutes and, and master an entire subject. Are they going to look at that portion of humanity that either does not have access to that technology or for whatever reason chooses not to deploy it, are they going to be considered equally human by them? Are they going to be, by the same token, uh, perhaps rounded up and, and you know just used as, as some sort of wage slave cattle? Um, all of these dangers, I think, are inherent in it. And quite frankly, Patrick, given the behavior of particularly the, the Anglo-American elites over the last few decades, I wouldn't put anything past them. <laughs> I, think, I think they've become, to a certain extent, um, kind of obsessed and enamored of their own power, and they're just doing a lot of this simply to see what they can do and get away with. So nothing surprises me. Drunk with power. So we've got, a, with we, power. We've got a few minutes left, Joseph. Um, uh-huh. once, once they achieve this transhumanistic agenda i mean what comes after that i mean haven't you essentially at that point cheated death well to a certain extent you have but you know i go back to what i said earlier is this necessarily a good thing do we want to see people like adolf hitler or joseph stalin or mao Zedong or you know people of that ilk miley cyrus yeah (laughs) do we want to see people like that uh, living hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Um, the the real problem we are trying to avoid moral issues with our technology, but you know it's only going to heighten the moral issues rather than make them go away and disappear. Um, I've said many times, Patrick, that we are living in the greatest era of cultural transition. You know, we tend to go through them about once every 500 years. But we are living through the greatest era of cultural transition ever in all of recorded human history. Um, the world and, and social mores and, and manners and customs, I think, are going to look very, very different, even perhaps in our lifetimes. Joseph Farrell, author of Transhumanism, A Grimoire of Alchemical Agendas. Absolutely brilliant spending the last hour with you, sir. 
tons of fun. Thank you for having me back on, Patrick. That was one tremendous hour. This is The Conspiracy Show.